12, where Andrew just read from. This amazing letter written to a group of Jewish converts in Rome facing persecution, wanting to turn back, shrink away, turn away, and the author's encouraging them, don't shrink back, Jesus is better, keep going, keep pursuing. So you can find this on page 948 in some of the Bibles and on 1009 in other of the Bibles that are around you. Open up so you can follow along with me. One of the things I love about the Bible is its brutal honesty. When you read uh, the, the scriptures, or you go to the book of Psalms, for example, there's psalms of lament, there's psalms of joy, there's psalms of thanksgiving, there's psalms where the uh, psalmist is crying out for justice, those are called imprecatory psalms. Every emotion that you could face in this life is found in Scripture. And not just found, but, but talked about, and talked about with brutal honesty. The Bible does not sugarcoat things. It doesn't overpromise and underdeliver. It doesn't lie. It tells it just straight up like it is. Maybe hard to hear, but it's truth and it's honest. And I love that about the, about the Bible. It just tells it like it is. Honest. In our section of Scripture that we've got before us this morning, we're going to see the author just being brutally honest with us. In chapter 12, he began by talking about how the Christian walk is like a long-distance run, and that it's hard, and that it's arduous. And he's, with brutal honesty, going to come uh, to us this morning and, and, and tell us, hey, like, that's exactly what it is, and it's, it's quite difficult. And the starting line is, you know, faith in Christ, that moment when you trusted by faith in Jesus' life, death, resurrection... The finish line is when we either die or Jesus comes back. But between those two, it's a long race. It's a difficult race. And so the author in brutal honesty is writing this section to those readers then and us today. Just telling us, keep running. I know it's hard. Keep running running don't drop out of the race and in the midst of this call to keep running he gives us three things that we need to be an emphasis on we there's a big emphasis here on congregational not just individual that's why in verse 15 it says see to it that no one fails. Like this is written not to pastors, not to elders. This book is written to the congregation. And he's saying, you guys, as a people, see to it that these things happen. And so there's a big emphasis on we. And so three things that we need to be in order to run this race. All right, that's what we're going to have this morning. And the first one, the first one's like distance running 101. Like this is just a truth of Distance running. And here's what it is. Be prepared for exhaustion and fight through it. It's the first thing we need to be. We must be prepared, number one in your notes, for exhaustion and fight through it. Look at verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And so when the author says drooping knees, weak 
uh, drooping hands and weak knees. He's talking about folks that are just slap worn out. And just absolutely worn out. To change the analogy from running for a second to football, because y'all follow along a little bit better than if we stay with the running analogy. In the fourth quarter, especially like, let's say, it, it, because I want y'all to love me more. UT, all right? So Vanderbilt fans maybe don't like this, but UT, Josh Heupel's, you know, fast-paced, hurry-up offense. What happens a lot of times in the fourth quarter, what we hope happens, in the fourth quarter is that the defensive linemen are getting worn down. They're getting worn out. And so if you're watching a game on television, you see hands, you know, on their hips. You see people struggling to get lined back up. You know that they are slap worn out. They are gassed. They don't have anything. Their hands are drooping. Their knees are weak, right? They're worn out or swinging it back to the marathon. I've never run one. Don't ever plan to. I'm more of a middle distance runner person. But what I've heard is that, especially for your first time, there's a proverbial like wall around 20 miles. And you wonder like, can I keep going? Can I keep going? And the author is saying, listen, Christian, that may be where you're at. You need to understand exhaustion comes in this life. It's difficult. And this may be where you're at. God may be, because he loves you and is for you, taking you through discipline, whether that's corrective discipline or formative discipline, like we talked about last week, doing this because he loves you. He wants the best in your life. He wants to strengthen you for something. And when he does that, there will be seasons where you feel like you've hit the wall. Where you feel like the defensive lineman in the fourth quarter who's gassed, hands on his knees. Where you feel like a boxer in the 15th round who's just done. And the author's being honest with us. He's not playing around. He's not sugarcoating. Those days and those seasons come. For all of us. And we have to be prepared and know with the honesty of Scripture that these come. Some of us in this room may be in that place right now. You are slap worn out. You're exhausted mentally, spiritually, emotionally. Friend, let me remind you that the darkest part of the night is right before dawn. In Psalm 30, joy comes in the morning. Keep running. Keep running. Press on. Fight through. Don't drop out. Verse 3. Consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility. He endured this against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And so you keep going. You depend on God's grace. You trust his promises. And you fight through this exhaustion like a distance runner at the end. Knowing, though, that you're not alone. Christ is with you. We talked about last week. He climbs in the boat with you, even in the midst of things. Strengthening you, undergirding you, helping you to go. Just don't quit. Don't quit. Keep running. And it's not an individual call. Like, we are all in the same race. We are all in the same fight. We are all in this together, the same journey. And so, as a body, we look around. And when we see those around us with drooping hands, with weakened knees, who are exhausted, we come around them. 
And this isn't some sort of program that a church should have. This is just how, this is a culture of love and discipleship. And when you see someone struggling, take them to lunch. And you encourage them. Keep going. I'm with you. We're with you. Don't drop out. Don't drop out. Help them stay on track. And this is what verse 13 is all about. And make straight paths for your feet. So that what is lame may be put out of joint. May not be put out of joint. But rather be healed. Like if you're, if you're going to go for a run, you want a clear path. Like I'm done with trail running. <laughs> right? At least rough stuff. I want a clear path from now on. I don't want this anymore. No more ankle busters. And so a clear path enables you to run well, to not fall, to not wind up lame, and to be able to run some more in the future. And so the author's saying, listen, clear out your path so you can run well. In other words, you're already exhausted. You're already tired. Don't make it harder by running a path strewn with obstacles, with temptations, with things that could trip you up. Run a clear path, not with snares. And so friend, what do you need to clear out of your life so that you can run all the way to the finish line? Are there subscriptions? Are there apps? Is it a relationship? Is it a hobby? Are there things you need to clear out of your life so you can run to the end? Make straight paths for your feet because you're going to get tired, you're going to get weak. Make it easier. And so number one, be prepared for exhaustion and push through. Second thing we need to be in order to run this race, we need to be at peace and at war simultaneously. Okay, we need to be at peace and at war simultaneously. Look at verse 14 and I'll explain. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so we are to seek to be at peace with who? What's the word? Everyone. All right. We are to, we are to seek to be at peace with everyone. Yet striving for holiness will require us to make war on our sin. To fight it. And so that's why the call, if we're going to finish this race, is to be at peace and at war simultaneously. The problem, though, is sometimes we flip-flop these things. And we make peace with our sin and war against everybody. But if we're going to run this race to the finish line, we must strive. That's a strong word, a very strong word. Pursue, seek, work for peace. But understand the command here is to strive for that. It doesn't say achieve it. We strive for it, but we may not be able to achieve it. We do what we can do. We may not achieve it always, but we pursue it always. Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all. And so you pursue, you strive. But that striving isn't a peace at all costs. You pursue it. 
But it's not a peace that denies the faith. It's not a peace that denies truth just so we don't get canceled in today's culture. You stand for truth. Kindly, not a jerk. But Christ's people are those who strive for peace and are known for doing so. I mean, obviously, as far as of Christ, if, there's a, if it's peace or truth, truth wins. If it's purity or peace, purity wins. But friends, we are to seek peace. And so, are you a peace seeker? Sermon on the Mount calls us to be peacemakers. And he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Which means the inverse is true. Cursed are the peace breakers, for they'll be called sons of Satan. Which of those two family resemblances do you give off? And you need to understand, peacemaking is hard. And the only way we will ever show this kind of peace is when we reflect on the kind of peace we've been shown. That while we were, Romans 5, yet enemies. Christ, Colossians 1.20, made peace with us by the blood of His cross. It is costly. Sacrificial. There's nothing cheap about peacemaking. It takes sacrifice. It takes humility. I mean, listen again to how Jesus brought us peace out of Philippians 2. We read together. Starting in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, like don't ignore yourself, yes, but don't just do that. Look also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. By the power of the Holy Spirit, this mind is ours. Who, Jesus, though he was not Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or like, for, like to, to hang on to. It can never be taken away from him. He's fully God, fully human. But he emptied himself. This is when he became human. Christmas. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. So he's already humbled himself just to do that. Now he humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is what humility and peacemaking looks like. Jesus didn't grasp his glory to to make peace with us. He didn't grasp onto his dignity, but instead he humbled himself. And friends, that must be true of us. If we are going to be peacemakers, we must be willing to lower ourselves to even lose our dignity in order to bring shalom to life. If you're going to finish this race that Jesus has called you to, you must strive for peace with everybody, but also we must strive for holiness. Verse 14, without which no one will see the Lord. Because holiness is essential for salvation. Holiness is essential for salvation. But not as a condition of salvation, but as a consequence. That's a big difference and super important. One would become workspace. The other one is flowing out of. When I grew, like, I grew up in the age of Iron Mike Tyson. I don't even know who's the heavyweight champion anymore in boxing. It's like not as big of a deal as it used to be. But when Iron Mike was boxing, somebody's getting pay-per-view. 
We're going to their house. We're going to watch the fight. It's going to be a big deal. And no one, no one hit with the power that Mike Tyson did. I mean, unbelievable. And hypothetically, let's pretend Mike Tyson punched me in the face. Since this is hypothetical, we can pretend I survive. (laughs) But bare minimum, my face would be rearranged. I would never look the same. When we get the gospel, that's what it does. It punches us in the face. We don't look the same. And there's an instantaneous portion of that. But there's a bigger portion of that that is ongoing and long-term. It's progressive. And so when we receive the Lord Jesus, man, at that moment, we are declared holy and blameless. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus did for us in our place as our substitute, His life, His death, His resurrection. All right. So what happens on the cross? What happens when you are saved is that Jesus takes His sins, takes your sins upon Him, So he cleans you, but then to be right with God, you've got to be holy and blameless. And so he gives to you his holiness that he earned, his blamelessness, his righteousness. That's how you are made right with God. He credits to you his perfect sinless righteousness. And so at that moment, declared not guilty, holy, blameless, But then we spend the rest of our lives becoming in practice what we've been made positionally at that moment. This is what is called sanctification. It's the process of becoming more and more Christ-like. In fact, the word holiness here in verse 15 can be translated, in verse 14 can be translated sanctification. Strive for peace with everyone and for sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Not at all meaning we're going to be sinless. We're going to be perfect but that we are striving. Now we are striving across our life, as Matt Chandler puts it, and this is a great definition of sanctification, to ever increasingly become less of a hypocrite. That's sanctification. Because we're all hypocrites. As we follow Christ, over time, becoming less of a hypocrite. That's what sanctification is. But here's the deal, no one does that accidentally. No one just happens to grow in Christ. No one drifts towards holiness. You drift away. You drift downstream. But if you want to make way upstream, what do you have to do? You have to swim. You have to fight. You have to put in grace-infused effort. And as you do that, as you make war on your sin, holiness and sanctification will be shown over time As one guy put it, not primarily because we memorize Bible verses, pray before meals, tie the portion of our income, listen to Christian radio stations, but because we increasingly show a willingness to put up with, to forgive, and even to love a bunch of fellow sinners. And we can't do that. This is why this moment, this gathering is so important. And being in each other's lives outside of this gathering We can't do that, nor can we demonstrate love or joy or peace or patience or kindness sitting all by ourselves on an island. Rather, we demonstrate it 
when the people we have covenanted to love in the church give us good reason not to, but we do so anyhow. That's what sanctification, that's what holiness looks like over time. Not, I'm going to take my toys and, 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 and go, but I'm going to work through this. Iron sharpens iron, sparks fly. And so in joining a church, you're saying, hey, I'm now your responsibility, and you are my responsibility. And so that brings us to our third point this morning. Be your brother's keeper. If we're going to run this race, if we're going to make it to the finish line, we must be our brother's keeper. Look at verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. And so again, this is not written to pastors and elders. This is written to the congregation. This is a command that's given to the church. We are one another's responsibility. We are one another's keeper, not in a nosy way, not in a condescending or intrusive way, not in a busybody way that gets in everybody's life and tells them what they should do, but in an encouraging way with concern for one another. And the author highlights three particulars here. And the first one is this. Be your brother's keeper in gospel growth. Okay, letter A, in gospel growth. That's what verse 15 means when it says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. He's not talking about salvation here. He's talking about the finish line here. He's saying, hey, when you see those drooping hands, when you see those weakened knees, call them, get together, gather around them. Keep them going. Keep them growing. Whatever it takes, see that they make it to the finish line. Help them to live at peace with others and at war with their sin. Help them to be honest. Not just play church. Not just play a game. Because we're dealing with life and death eternally here. And so be your brother's keeper in gospel growth. But then secondly, letter B, be your brother's keeper against bitterness. Against bitterness. Verse 15, the end of it. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And I think it's interesting that he picks bitterness here. Like of all the sins you could warn the congregation to help guard one another against, this is pretty specific. But I think it's because bitterness is such a threat because it's contagious. By it, many can become defiled. Bitter people, think about it, bitter people breed bitter people. You get around a bitter person, you're going to become a bit more bitter if you're not very, very careful. And we don't usually make a cognitive decision to become bitter, right? No one's usually like, you know what, in response to this, I'm going to get bitter. But it's when we allow ourselves to fester over a wrong that was maybe done to us, like a legit wrong. And we just fester and we just rehearse it over and over and over in our minds. And it lets that bitterness take root. And then what does a root do? It sprouts, starts growing. And so sometimes, listen, it's an absolute wrong someone has done to us. And so like reality check, you all know this, but I'm going to stain it plainly just 
In this life, you will be sinned against. You know that. But we need to hear it. And most of the time, by people you love and that are close to you, your family, your church members. That's why it's super easy to love people that are at a distance, right? You don't have any involvement. They're not going to hurt your feelings. You're not going to hurt theirs. But people who are proximity, that's where you get hurt. You'll get hurt and you'll hurt them. And so sometimes it's an absolute wrong that someone has done to you that then gives you an opportunity or serves as a catalyst for bitterness to start springing up in your heart. But very often, it's a misunderstanding. And people then create a false narrative around it, fill in the blanks, assume the worst about one another, when if they would just talk about it, it would be cleared up. This is why I hate Hallmark Christmas movies. Because this is the plot line of every single one. There's a sweet little couple. Things are happening. Then there's a misunderstanding. They assume the worst. And they, they, they create, they fill in the blanks or whatever. And I'm sitting there watching. If you would just talk, this would be over. There'd be no need for this movie or my time watching it. And so, sometimes the best thing you can do to stamp out bitterness is just have a conversation. Let me see if I understand this right. And just talk about it. But whether you were legit sinned against or there's a misunderstanding, you do have to understand that allowing yourself to become enslaved, or, or allowing yourself to become bitter enslaves you perpetually to something that's not perpetually going on. Does that make sense? Like you're enslaved to this thing for life or for a long season when it was something maybe that happened one time way back here and you are just controlled by it. And it can't, like it it doesn't just stay with you. When you grow bitter, it seeps out the seams of your life and infects and affects everyone around you. And the author's saying, watch out for that in your own life and watch out for it in people's lives around you. And if you start to see a root of bitterness, love them enough to help them pour a gallon of gospel roundup on it and kill it. No root of bitterness. To free themselves, to protect the church, to walk in obedience before the, You are your brother's keeper. Well, Joe, how do, you, how do you do that? Well, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you remember the gospel. That while we were Christ's enemies, like we talked about a minute ago, He died for us. He didn't get bitter. He didn't get even. He forgave. And when you consider all that you've been forgiven of, maybe you can forgive someone else. Bitterness is defeated by looking at the cross. Is there some bitterness you need to lay aside? Is there something you need to let go of? We have to do that in order to run the race. In verse 1, let us lay aside 
every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. We are our brother's keeper in gospel growth against bitterness and then letter C against immorality. Look at verse 16. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, Scripture gives no word about Esau being sexually immoral. What they're doing here, what the author's doing here, is coupling the fact, is coupling together Esau's lustfulness, his desire for instant gratification. And so he sold his birthright for a meal. And the point is that sexual lust and all lust, be it Wanting people to praise you, tell you how awesome you are, just living for the praise of men, likes on social media, living for position or popularity or prestige or power or money. Lust for the world is unholiness. Now those things that would just list aren't, most of them aren't necessarily like sinful in and of themselves, but you lust for them. You desire them more than you do God. You want them more than you do. You worship them. That's idolatry. That's unholy. Instant gratification, whether that's sexually or otherwise, doesn't understand the deeper joy, the greater treasure that is awaiting us. It's choosing to give up the wiser, more joyful, long-term, better plan of God for instant gratification right now. And like Esau, that will leave you with tears. But unlike Esau... Your tears, verse 17, can be tears of true repentance that lead to restoration. See, verse 17 says, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Here's the reality. God never rejects true repentance. Ever. He loves you, He wants you, He wants to restore a relationship with you, but regret and repentance are two completely different things. Esau regretted, but he had no true repentance. Repentance hates sin, admits sin, agrees with God that what I did, what was done is sin, and then turns and fights on. Okay, it sees it, sees it, grieves it, Decides to leave it and flees to Christ to cleanse it. And friend, he will. He will if you turn to him. He will cleanse. He will forgive. He loves you. You cannot out his grace. You can't. And so he invites any and everyone to turn to him in repentance and faith. But you don't know what I've done. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. There is no sin or collection of sins that can defeat the cross of Christ. The power of the cross. The love that God has for His children. When I was growing up, my parents told me all the time that they loved me. I'm so thankful for that. It was great. It's something that you should do. And I knew they did. I did. I knew that they did. But it wasn't until 
I had children of my own that I realized, whoa, mom and dad do really, really love me. When I, that, that for me. It was only then. And in a similar way, we right now, we, we have no idea how much God loves His children. You have no idea. I have no idea. None. God loves His children, stealing from the little kids' Bible I read, with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. He delights in His children. He wants the best for His children. And as God, He knows better than you do what is best. And so He gave us a book. And He said, here it is. And what that book is saying to us this morning is keep running. And as you do, being brutally honest with you, you must be prepared to be face exhaustion and push through and be at peace and war simultaneously and be your brother's keeper in gospel growth against bitterness and against immorality. And when you fail and fall, unlike Esau, Repent. And God will pick you up like a loving dad with a little child, dust you off and say, hey, let's go again. Keep running. I'm right with you. I'm right with you. And that, too, is honest. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the love that you have for broken sinners. Who sometimes, like we say with our own children, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. And yet, you love us. And you walk with us. And you forgive us. And you encourage us and press us on. Father, help us to understand the fatherliness that you have towards us. Replace the inherent because of our fallen brain view of you so often as just a judge. with cosmic scales. And when we do good, you're happy. And when, you, when we do bad, you zap us. Help us to understand, yes, you discipline those you love, but you don't punish. Jesus took that. He paid it all. And all that's left for us now is your unconditional love that does love us enough to shape us, change us, move us, form us. And so, Father, help us to trust you. Help us to pursue and strive to make war on our sin, to press on in the exhaustion, and to care for those around us. We need you. 
every minute, every hour. And we praise you that you were there every minute, every hour. Even when we don't have eyes to see, you are. In Jesus' name, we praise you.